came out of my office doing sermon prep, and uh, Ann said, you look nervous, what's going on? And I said, well, it's the subject that I'm, I'm preaching on. It's, and she's like, what are you preaching on? And I said, sex. And she said, why? And I said, because that's the next verse, verses that we come to in the text. And she looked at me, my godly wife, and said, skip it. Um, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I feel like if I'm preaching God's Word, I've got to preach all of it. And one of the things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that you come to subject matter that you wouldn't normally preach on. And you have to decide whether you're going to be a wimp and skip it or whether you're going to go ahead and, and power through. But the danger in a text like this is, uh, is this. I have no problem at all, and it's a hill I'm willing to die on, if you're offended by what God's Word says. Because then you're not mad at me, you're mad at God. And that's not on me. However, um, pray for me this morning, because if you're offended because I'm an idiot, and say things in, a, in an un, uh, uh, in impolite way or say things in a way that's offensive, then that's not you being offended by God's Word. That's you offended by me not representing God's Word well. I mean, we had a child just read this text, and I didn't feel uncomfortable. I don't think anybody in there felt uncomfortable. Paul is able to address this subject without um, being uh, base about it. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, please pray for me and remember... As I preach, pray for me. Father God, Lord, as we approach this text, I pray that you would help me to be true to your word, to be honest with your word. Lord, if, if people are willing or want to be offended by your word, Lord, help me to, to, um, to represent your word well. But Lord, I pray that you help me in an attempt to uh, since I'm dealing with an uncomfortable subject, to be uh, funny, to kind of off-put that, Lord, or, or be cute. Uh, uh, God, I pray that you protect me from, from, a, from me offending someone. Lord, I pray that this is such a, 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 an important subject. This is such a subject that we in our culture now need. That, Lord, I would be true to, this, to your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill this room, that you would convict and draw. Of these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was reading this week as I've been preparing uh, about the idea in, that, that's out there of something called a sexual atheist, which means I'm a Christian, I believe everything that the Bible says, uh, except where it comes to the subject of sex, and then God doesn't have any right to talk to me about that. I'm an atheist in that area. And I would suggest that if you're a sexual atheist, you're just an atheist. If you're a financial atheist, if you say that God can speak in every area of my life except my money, then there's a real problem there. Because the whole idea of Christianity is that you come to God and say, all of me is yours. That includes these other, the, all the areas, that includes your sex life, that includes how you spend your money, that includes how you spend your time, that includes how you rear your children, that includes everything. And in fact, if we hold back anything, then we've given him nothing. If that makes any sense at all. And so as we dive into this text, the first thing that we have to do whenever we look at any text is put the passage in its context. 
It's so easy for us to reach into Scripture, rip a verse out, and try to, try to apply it or, or make it say what we want it to say. And in this text, we want to make sure we don't do that. So there's two ways that you take the context of any Scripture, whether you're studying a Scripture in 1 Corinthians or whether you're studying a, a verse in, in Ecclesiastes or this verse. You look at its near context and its far context. And its near context is always what's going on in that text as Paul is writing this letter. Remember what we said last week. Paul is writing a letter to a literal group of people in a literal city, and this was a letter that he wrote to address issues. And so we know that Paul had, or Timothy, had just returned to Paul and given him a report. Remember last week, we we read that Timothy's report came to them and that he had said uh, that they were increasing, and this was the thrust of last week's uh, sermon, in their love and in their faith. And we, we dug deeply into those concepts of love and faith. And so the, he, Paul tells them, hey, these are the good things you're doing. And then he gets to this and says, hey, there's some areas you might want to work on. So that's the, the near context. The other thing that I think is interesting is in this discussion about practical application of things, Paul bookends both ends of it with the fact that Jesus is coming back. In verse 313, before we get into this, we read, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then he goes through chapter 4, giving a lot of practical application, including this discussion about sexual purity. And then he ends it with saying, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That passage that everybody preaches at funerals. Jesus is coming back. And so at the beginning and end Paul, of these practical applications of day-to-day life, Paul bookends it with the fact that Jesus is coming back. I think the thrust in this passage is that you are set apart. God has chosen you not just to do whatever you want to do, but to be different, to be set apart, to be holy. And so a big part of that is how do we look at our sexual life? And so he bookends it with Jesus is coming back. We're going to have to give an account for every area of our life, including this one. So that's the near context. Now, the far context is this. Now, And the reason why I want to talk about the far context is I've read, and when I say that there's a group out there that call themselves sexual atheists, there's a group out there that argue that the Bible has nothing to say about this area of your life. I, I read an article by a guy in... I'm not going to say the name of the magazine because I'm not absolutely sure. And he essentially, his argument was, you know what? The Bible is jacked up in the way that it talks about sex. If you look at the patriarchs, they would, you know, some of them would have four or five wives. You've got stories in the book of Genesis about people doing crazy wackadoo things where you have a, a, a girl who's in prostitution and she ends up having sex with her father-in-law and getting pregnant from that. And, having, and, and, and the argument is, you know what, the Bible is, is all over the board in sexuality, so why should I look, read it for how I should have my, control my sex life? Well, the problem with that is, is the Bible is unflinching in its view, and it shows us in people who do whatever they want to sexually that there are consequences. From the beginning, the Bible has laid out a very specific, very tight, set of rules, and we read that. Max mentioned it in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2, we read this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then this quote from God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the very beginning, God established what we're supposed to do with our sexual lives. The, the story from the beginning that Jesus quotes in the New Testament, as Max pointed out, is one man for one woman for one lifetime. That's been the plan from the beginning. Anything outside of that is a variation or a differentiation. And so, yes, the Bible shows us lots of people who disobey that. You know what? If we walked around that, this room, there's lots of us who haven't lived up to that ideal. And you know what? There's consequences to that. And God shows us in the Bible. When we decide, you know what, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to do things my way. There are consequences to that. When the Bible shows us that David decided uh, that Bathsheba was hot and he was going to call her up to his, his apartment and all that went, he shows us the, what happens because of that. And it's not good. And so I would argue that not only does the Bible have the right to speak to this area of our life, it tells us truthfully. You know, no other history about people when, when they're trying to, to make somebody look good or make somebody famous tells all of the bad things, good things that they do. And the Bible does. I mean, David is one of the heroes of the Bible. And yet we see his failure, his restoration, and then even after his resur restoration, the consequences that occurred because of his sin. So... The other reason why I think we should really delve deeply into this is this idea of submission. In Romans chapter 1, it, we read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is saying, and here in Romans chapter 1, that all of humanity, every person who has ever lived, can look at nature, can look at the intricacies of nature and how God made things work and say, there has to be a God. Which is why I say I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe they exist. I believe there are people who claim to be atheists. I believe people there argue that there is no God and I hate his guts. But I think what Romans chapter 1 says is even those people that claim to be atheists know that there's a God and know when they look outside just like everybody else, when they look at the stars and they feel so small, that there has to be something bigger than us. I was just reading uh, on Facebook about uh, how, you know, a few years ago, uh, the National Park Service reintroduced 12 wolves into Yellowstone. And they looked at the cascading ecological positive effect that occurred in Yellowstone. Everything from 
because the deer population has been cut way down, that has opened up areas that the deer were keeping the grass all the way chomped down. And now that grass is growing up in those areas because deer are pretty smart. Once they realize if I walk out there, I'm going to get eaten by a wolf. They're not going to walk out there. That those areas now grow up and that, that other critters that have left Yellowstone have now come back in and they're thriving. And that because of all that, that the, the beaver population in Yellowstone is thriving, which is causing the banks to be more secure because beaver dams are doing this, that, and the other thing. And all of these echoes from just putting nature back to the way God had originally established it. It's almost like God's pretty smart. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. Why don't all y'all leave my plan alone? And so what this text is saying up to this point is everybody knows that there are, there's a God. In fact, Paul here is even saying that the reason why people rebel against God is not because they don't believe that there's a God, but because they don't want that God to tell them what to do. He goes on to say, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they were futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the, the, the kind of the path we see man naturally taking is, first of all, man goes, you know what, God, I don't want you telling me what to do. So, you know what, hey, there ain't no God. Seriously, y'all. And then the next step is worshiping stuff. Hey, let's make an idol and worship it. Hey, have you seen the latest iPhone? Whatever that looks like, idolatry is the next step. First, we deny God because we're in rebellion, and then we start worshiping other things. That's the logical step. Now, let's look at the next one because it's really shocking if you think about it. Because you would think that the way that there would be a slow progression, but listen to the next one. Now, remember, it's God who gave them up to their futile thinking. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, creator rather than the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So the natural progression is, is denying that there's a God, even though that you know that there is, idolatry, and then the next thing is I'm going to do what I, with, what I want with my body. That's the natural progression. And it's God who gives them up and turns them over to a reprobate mind. It's God who says, fine, you want to deny that I exist? Do what you want to do. Which is why I've said, when people suggest that God is going to punish America because of homosexuality, or God's going to punish America, but I, I've always said, no, God is punishing America with that. Because of this text which says God turns us over, you want to do whatever you want to do, do it. Which means that that is an act of rebellion against a holy God. So when, if you, and I'm just warning you, if you come into my office and say, you know what, I, my wife and I have been struggling for years, I've really wanted to leave her, I've got this girlfriend, and I feel like I, I should go marry her, and I prayed and prayed and prayed about this, but now God has given me peace, which I've had people tell me on multiple occasions, I'm going to look you square in the face, I'm setting you up now and say, you're a liar. Do what you want to do, but don't bring God in it, because he's not the one that's leading you to sin. So God turns them over to a reprobate mind. 
And then he goes into details. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now, lest you think this text is only referring to homosexuality, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so, when we rebel against God with our sex life, we're saying to God, you might as well not exist, I'm going to do what I want to do. And so I think it's important that we look at this text. And then finally... Matthew uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus raises the bar. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We can't do that, man. This is a text that raises the bar to a level that's almost impossible to live out day by day by day. Every man that I do counseling with, I tell them, the two things that every male struggles with is anger and lust. Every male that I've ever counseled with, most of their problems fall into one of those two areas or both of those two areas. And Jesus puts the bar way, way, way up here. So, Paul here says, and I I love the way he decided to put this. Again, it's almost like God's pretty smart and has a plan. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, one of the things I would say when people make an appointment and come talk to me, one of the more common questions I get, and oftentimes they won't put it this way, but what they're really asking is, is what is God's will for my life? People act like God's will is some kind of uh, like an Easter egg. I'm looking for it. God's hit it really well. So I got to look in the crack of the tree. I got to look under the rocks. And I got to find God's will for my life. Um, Oftentimes, young people will come to me and go, okay, here, I I could go to this college or this college. Which one is God's will for my life? Or I'm dating this girl. I love her. She's hot. I want to marry her. Is that God's will for my life? I have had adults, though, that came and said, okay, I've got this job opportunity where I'm going to get a big raise, but I'm going to be away from the house for a long time, and I just don't know what God wants me to do. What's God's will for my life? That's a really common question. I know when I was working for Drum and Cole, we were living in South America. Uh, Ann and I were really, really struggling with what was the next step of our life going to look like. I felt like God was calling me into the ministry and did not feel like God was calling me into the ministry. Um, we, we, we were struggling with that because she wanted that security of, of a job. And honestly, I didn't know if that was, is this just like a midlife crisis? Am I going to go to seminary instead of getting a vet and, and some gold chains? 
Um, is that, that what's going on here? And so what I decided to do was I actually got the big strong concordance and I looked up the, God's will and I started looking up every verse and studying the verses that the Bible says specifically. This is God's will for your life. And I got maybe three verses into that and I was talking to one of my brothers in Christ and he said, well, you realize there's a book that's already written on that? And I'm like, really? And so John MacArthur wrote a book called God's Will Found and uh, he, he does that very same thing. And so it, I'm just going to divert here for a little bit. But if you want to know in any area of your life what God's will for your life is, this, this is the answer. I can tell you what it is. God, there are some specific things in the Bible that the Bible says, this is God's will for you. And there's not many. You would think there's 18, 19, 20, 35, I don't know. There's actually, that, that I know of only six places in the Bible where God says, this thing is God's will for you. The first one is, it's God's will that you're saved. In 1 Timothy 2, we read, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. The verse we all memorized in Awana, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And remember, and the phrase there, if you remember, if you memorize that in King James, it's not God's will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's will for your life is not that you go to hell. It's God's will that you be saved. It's God's will that you're filled with His Spirit. In Ephesians 5, we read, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's God's will that you're filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a confusing idea because of, of we think of when I say filled, um, we think of like a glass. If I said to the glass, you be filled with water, the glass can't do that, right? Some outside source has to do that. So when we say be filled with the Spirit, there's a lot of confusion over that. But I'd like you to jettison the analogy in your mind of a glass. And instead, when you talk about being filled with the Spirit, use the analogy in your mind of a sail. If a sail is filled with wind, that's what controls it, that's what moves it. And the people on that ship have a lot to do with whether or not that ship is filled with the wind. How they, how they tack that line down, how they turn that sail. Just like you, if you fill your life with God's Word, if you, if you spend time on your needs, you can control how much filling of God's Spirit you have to some degree. Now, God's Spirit is God's Spirit. He's God. You don't get to tell God what to do in anything. Whether you put in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayer or not, you don't get to command God, period. You don't have authority in that area. However, the idea of being filled with the Spirit, if you think of the analogy of the sail and the wind filling that sail, that's what moves you. That's what controls you. That's what guides you. And just like we said, how do you know what Jesus wants for your life? The way that we know what the Holy Spirit wants you to do is from that book. We know that because Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your heart to God. If you are letting God's word dwell in you, then God's Holy Spirit is controlling you. And you can tell if that's happening if you look, are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which we know in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you are a hate-filled, anger-spewing, lack-of-peace person, you're not being controlled by the Spirit. No matter what circumstances are coming into your life. 
Last night we went to Taco Bell because we, we, we were up for some seriously good cuisine. And we went up to order and I, I got a sack of tacos for me and the girls and Ann wanted a nacho bel grande. And so I said, let me get a, a, a you know, the little meal with 10 tacos, three hard shell for me and six hard shell for the girls and then uh, a nacho supreme. And the lady reads that back and I said, yes, ma'am, bam, bam. And we pay for it and then I go over here to wait and she hands me the tacos and I'm said, I'm waiting for a nacho bel grande. Well, you didn't order a nacho bel grande. And I said, yes, ma'am, I did. And she said, well, I'm looking here. It ain't on there. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know what you keyed, but it, it's, it's, it, it is. And so the manager came up, is there a problem here? I'm like, no, there's not a problem. I just I ordered Nacho Belgrande, and I'd like to get my Nacho Belgrande. And, and uh, the, the cashier immediately turns to him and goes, he didn't order no Nacho Belgrande. And all of a sudden, waves of not the Holy Spirit came upon me. <laughs> and, and Ann recognized my body language, I guess, from across the Taco Bell, because she came walking up and said, is there a problem, honey? And I'm like, no, there ain't no problem. And I'm biting my tongue, but... At that moment, everything in me wanted to say, you stupid, stupid woman. I clearly said, give me a Nachos Belgrande. Now, a Nachos Belgrande cost, what, $2? But I came that close to sacrificing my testimony and my witness. And I, I sat there and bit my tongue. And finally, Ann goes, you want me to wait for the nachos? I'm like, that's probably a good idea. And I turned around, and there was a lady from the church, like two people back. <laughs> and I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Woo! Went and sat down with the kids and ate my tacos and kept my mouth shut. <laughs> so you know if you're filled with the Spirit or whether you're filled with anger and hatred. It's God's will that you submit in 1 Peter 2, we read this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It doesn't matter whether you voted for the president or not. God is in control. It doesn't matter whether you voted for that congressman or not. God knew who was going to be in there. None of us voted for the cop that pulled you over. None of us. But according to this text, the same word, minister, is used of him that's used of a pastor. He's a minister of God. And any of you that have driven by a, 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 a wreck scene where there are people strewn around, wish that, that more cops were out there doing their job. It's just frustrating when he pulls you over. And you're going, on. it's only 15 miles an hour for the love. Because there's nobody wants to hear, can I see your license and registration? Nobody. Here's my license and registration. You know I pay your salary. That is a great way to get out of a ticket. Am I right? I got some cops back here that are going, yes. He don't want care who pays his salary. He wants you to slow down. And he is put in place by the God that created you to protect you. And it's God's will that you submit. Even when we don't like it, none of us want to be told what to do. Nobody wants anybody going, it's what you're going to do, big shooter. Nobody likes the way that makes you feel. 
Which is exactly why God put people in place. Because God knew that we're just stupid enough to kill ourselves. If there wasn't somebody there to go, stop, oh my gosh. You've all had kids that you walked in and they're... they're when William was a, a baby, sorry, uh, sorry son, I'm about to throw you under the bus. He, we had this fish tank on top of the girl's uh, dress, dress, chest of drawers, dresser thing. And I, we were sitting in the living room watching TV or something, and we realized that the room was a lot quieter than it should be. Which every parent has that innate ability to go, hey, it's awful quiet right now. <laughs> and so I go into the, I go look in William's room. There's no William. I'm looking around. I go into the girl's bedroom, and William has taken that chest of drawers and pulled the drawers out in such a way that he'd made steps for himself. He's up on top of the dresser, good probably four and a half, five feet up in the air, leaned over with the dresser teeter-totting on its edge now, and he's fishing. He's got his hand in their fish tank, chasing this goldfish. Water splashing out everywhere, and I'm like, have you lost your mind? And, you know, he looks at me, and I'm like, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing. No idea what you're talking about. God puts things in, in place to protect us. So it's God's will that you're saved. It's God's will that you're filled with the Spirit. It's God's will that you submit to authorities. It's God's will that you're thankful. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18 it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now it doesn't say give thanks in all the circumstances that you like. And now this is one of those things, and I love, I, I've gotten this, I moved this one Toward the end, because it, it ties in very well with the, 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 the one that we're, we're really focusing on with sexual sin. If you're not a thankful person, if every time anybody goes, hey, how are you doing? And you actually tell them, well, my bursitis has been hurting. There's some people that you just learn over time, you don't ask them how they're doing. If you're one of those people, you're like, hey, and they're like, oh my gosh, everything stinks. Life sucks. This person's bad, that person's bad, I got this to do, I got that to do. It's been cold. Who's heard of it being cold in May? Whose idea was this stupid weather anyway? I had to drag the kids' clothes out of the winter stuff. I had to get up in the attic. How many had to do that this weekend? We had a soccer game, and we're, we don't have any hoodies left. Just wrap up in some seraphine. Let's go. If you're that kind of person, Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of a man. And if you go around all the time, this is bad, that's bad, this stinks, that stinks, who does that really hurt? You. It pulls you down. It, it, I mean, lay aside that nobody wants to be around somebody like that. And I can tell you as a group, I couldn't tell you individually, you know, really, I just wish you'd shut up. But if you're somebody that complains all the time about everything, that's not what this text is teaching. It says, be thankful in all circumstances. When we were missionaries in Turkey, we frequently had groups from America that would come. And it always amazed me, there would be, this would happen. Have one group, they come from South Carolina, and be four people in it, and there would be one person who everything was bad. 
The food, yeah, I don't like this food. This is nasty. I'm not trying that. Ew, gross. They eat that. These people are weird. And then you would go to somebody's house. And I got to take my shoes off to go in their house. I, I don't want to take my shoes off. That's just terrible. Oh my gosh, these people are so stupid. And they take their shoes off. And then, you, oh, I got to sit on the ground. These people can't afford chairs. What's their problem? And they would gripe, 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 everything. We got to walk everywhere. Oh my gosh, don't these people know how to use cars? What's the problem with this? Oh, we got to ride on a bus. Everybody stinks on the bus. Why don't these people use deodorant? And everything was gripping. And then you would have somebody else that would be like, oh, wow, I've never eaten this before. That's amazing. Ooh, I've never tried this before. That's not something I would really like, but it was neat to be able to try it. And then somebody would go, oh, you mean we can honor this family just by taking our shoes off? Oh, wow, that's so cool. I wish we could do that. And then, went, oh, this bus is so strange. I've never been in a bus like this. Woo, nobody does use deodorant, but that's a very musky smell. And, and everything that happened, they were looking at it from the positive side. And so two people who experienced the exact same thing when they would get home, they wrote after you know, their little, little reviews that they would email back to us so that we could make their experience better. And the one person would write back, it was a horrible trip, I hated it, I was miserable the whole time, why wouldn't y'all take us to McDonald's? And the other person would write back and say, this was an amazing trip, God changed my life, I wish I could live there, I wish everything. And they both experienced the exact same things. And the difference was, is one walked through life being thankful and the other one walked through life going, oh my gosh, this gold brick you just gave me is so heavy. And so we're commanded, whether you like it or not, to be thankful. I wish I could just finish preaching on thankfulness and not have to delve off into the other subject. It's God's will that you suffer. This is a pleasant sermon. For it is better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than for doing evil. There are times in your life when the best thing that can happen to you is you could suffer. We in America want to push anything negative away, anything bad. We don't, don't want it to happen. And I, I'm telling you, and I've said it from this pulpit before, God is more concerned about your Christ-likeness than he is your happiness. And so sometimes it's absolutely God's will that you suffer. And then finally, it's God's will, this text that we're going to preach, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I want to look at two words that Paul uses here. One is the word sanctification, hagiosmos. Hagios is used throughout the Bible as something that's holy. Now, we hear the word holy, we think of purity. But sanctification or holiness is really just something that is set apart, something that is different. In the Old Testament, in the, the book of Leviticus, there are shovels that are called holy shovels. Now, it doesn't mean that those shovels were more spiritual than everybody else. It doesn't mean that those shovels were made out of gold. It didn't mean that those shovels had scripture engraved on them. What it meant was is that those shovels were only to be used in the temple... You couldn't take them out and, and dig a hole to plant a peach tree with them. They were set apart for temple use and temple use alone. They were set apart. And so when the Bible talks about holiness, it means that God has chosen you to be different than this world. There are people who are in the faith who say, but I just want to do what everybody else is doing. Why can't I just be normal like everybody else? And I'm telling you, because God has made you special. You're different. God has set you apart. God reached down into the mud and the muck and the mire and the nastiness and said, I want this one. 
and set you aside to be different. So that word holiness means you're not like everybody else. When I was a teenager, I had someone recommend it, and I wrote it in the front of my Bible. Others may, you cannot. Because God has called you for something better. The other word that we need to look at is this one, sexual immorality, which is a word that we, you all know is porneo. And porneo in the, in the Greek just means any sexual sin. It covers homosexuality, it covers adultery, it covers fornication, it, it colors, covers pornography, it covers any sin, sexual sin that you commit outside of the bounds of marriage, outside of the bounds that were laid down there in the book of Genesis. One man for one woman for one lifetime. Now, if Paul just stopped there, and he could. How many of you here as parents when your kid said, well, why? Your response is, it's a good parent, because, you can all say it with me, I said so. Oh, we love that one, don't we, parents? That's, that would be definitely on the list of things that my parents said that I hated that I now say all the time. Why are we going to? Because I said so. Now get your tail in there. Come back here. Try again. Come on. Come back. All right, you roll your eyes at me one more time, and I'll roll them back to the back of your head. I'm picking on the kids today. Sorry. <laughs> but God tells us why. So there are four reasons that David, uh, Paul lays out for why he is asking them to control themselves sexually. Number one, that each of one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. One of the reasons that Paul says we are to are, are to be sexually pure is because as Christians, we are to know how to control our body. Now that's not just in sexuality. And I'm not trying to step on any, too many toes, but that also has to do with what you eat or don't eat. It has to do with what you drink or don't drink. The Bible commands us that we are to control our own bodies, not vice versa. We are not to be slaves to our own passion. We're not to be slaves to what I want. I want that, I want it now. I've had people complain about the Hardys over here, and I've, I've chuckled to myself as they've said, you know what, I pulled up there and it took them like four minutes to get me a burger. I ain't going back to that place. Like, You've got to be kidding me. I mean, it's a little worse in the morning, right, because they're just opening up. But we want what we want, and we want it now. And what Paul is saying that as Christians, we should control our own body. I love this. One time C.S. Lewis was asked, do you have a soul? And he said, no. And the crowd collectively murmured and gasped. He said, you are a soul. You have a body. The person that you are, God's given you one body. He made it in his image. And we need to control how we use it. And that takes discipline. And that's hard to do. Because the body wants what the body wants. The heart wants what the heart wants. We've all heard that said. And that's a lie. That's right up there with I fell in love. No, you fall in a hole. <laughs> Second thing, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. 
as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is scary stuff. If you are having an affair with somebody, every interaction you have with them, even interactions with the heart, you are robbing them. Say, well, what about pornography? Nobody's getting hurt with that. Are you kidding me? We have created a culture where sexual slavery is a very real thing because there's a bunch of loser guys that want to get on the computer and be fed their desires without any capacity or need for them to be something for somebody else. I can get what I want and, and nobody else has to be involved. And so that's created a world where little girls get sucked up off the street and put in these situations to feed your desires. Pornography is straight up idolatry. It's saying, God, what you've given me what I, and what I want are two different things. Forget you, I'm going to get what I want without having to love a wife and care for her. When, if you are involved in fornication, which is sex before marriage, in that both parties are causing the other person to sin. The coercion that goes on in those kind of relationships, you know, we've all seen the, 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 the 50s kind of, kind of movies. Hey, baby, you know I love you. Come on. That's a lie. You're destroying somebody's life. You're pulling somebody in a direction that they don't want to go, and you know it. That's why you're using coercive language. So the first reason why Paul is saying is that we are to be disciplined within our own bodies. The second reason is because you're hurting another person. And then finally, and to me this is the most compelling, or the second to last one, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. God's called you for better. God has set you apart to use you. God wants to make you... Remember when we looked at Matthew last year when we were in the book of Luke? Here was this guy who was the worst of the worst of the worst in his culture. And God not only saved him. God didn't just say, okay, yeah, we'll let you into the group, but you're going to have to stand there in the back. No, God used him. He wrote a book of the Bible, and he was the worst of the worst. But he had to change his life before God could use him. He didn't keep on stealing. He didn't continue doing the things God had called him not to do. And so, if you want to be used by God, you've got to obey. That's just simplistically truth. And so God wants you to be used in holiness, and He sets you apart. And then finally, the hammer. The fi final reason why we should obey, therefore... Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The way Paul words this is with both the carrot and the stick. God loves you so much that he would save you. What, don't you want to obey him? Don't you want to thank him with your life? He's given you the Holy Spirit. Don't you want to live that out? And the idea of the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And God's already said that if you go beyond 
and hurt your brother and sister in Christ by disobeying this. God's the avenger. So as we come to this time of invitation, I'm going to broaden the invitation because I don't want, uh, I don't want it to be that anybody that comes down here to pray, everybody's going, oh, they're committing sexual sin. You know what, as we talk about sanctification, there's a bunch of us in here, myself included, that you know God set you apart for something, you're just not living it out. Whether it's sin in this area or sin in other areas. Be the man or woman of God that God has called you to be. If you're in here and you need to confess sin, this altar is open. If you're in here and you've never gotten saved, you're out of God's will. It's not God's will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The Bible makes it very clear that if we call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And finally, if you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you join us. We would love to have you join this church so that we together can fight the good fight for him. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that you would move in this invitation time. In Jesus' name, amen.